0: Many years ago, Abraham Kuyper, the great Dutch theologian, said this, do not forget that the fundamental contrast has always been, is still, and will be until the end, Christianity and paganism, the idols or the living God. Kuyper said this in his famous lectures on Calvinism, so-called the Stone Lectures at Princeton University in 1898, 1898 Kuiper said that, 120 years ago. And what he said is more true than it has ever been in Western culture, because we are seeing a contrast today in the public square primarily, but it even has dimensions that we're seeing pop up in evangelical life, in church life, as we shall discuss, Christianity Or we could even say in the public square, you know, in politics and and culture, a traditional understanding of the human person, okay, a traditional understanding, I'll talk more about this, and then a pagan understanding of the human person, which is very much not traditional and very much not with the consensus that you see in religious circles, Christian, Jewish, even Muslim, and other uh, religions, denominations, agreeing at least on a few matters about the human person. There's now a new understanding of the human person, new for our public times, that is, as we shall see, an ancient understanding of the human person that we call pagan. It does not traffic in Christian concepts, biblical concepts of the human person. It offers an entirely different understanding of humanity. Friends, there is no idea that has swept over America in recent times like that of transgender, transgenderism. It is not that the phenomenon of gender dysphoria is new. Gender dysphoria is when you feel like you are a person trapped in the wrong body, okay? You may have heard that term, gender dysphoria, kind of a fancy-sounding psychological term. It simply means that you believe that you're a boy trapped in a girl's body, or you believe that you're a girl trapped in a boy's body. Something like this. You, you have a certain anatomy, a certain physique, a certain frame. But your identity doesn't match up with your body. Okay? That's what we're talking about. And I know we have a mixed group in here. And I'm so thrilled that you youngsters, you high schoolers and youth uh, of varying ages, college students, um, you're in here because these things are not going to go away in our time these things are going to intensify in terms of the public square in our day. As I say, it is actually not a new phenomenon that people would feel like they should wear the clothes of the opposite sex. That's not new. It might seem to be new, but it's not. These instincts run through many societies, though they're nearly always on the fringe. Today, what is new in our time is the push, again, in the public square, in our political, cultural life, in terms of businesses, in terms of public restrooms, in terms of the way public schools are going to talk about identity, what is new is the push to normalize a so-called transgender identity. Transgenderism represents the rejection of what is called a gender essentialist vision of humanity. According to transgender advocates, according to the LGBTQ and so on lobby, gender is not fixed. It's not formed by God, certainly, but it's not fixed in any real sense. According to the progressive vision, as we shall see the pagan vision of humanity, gender is fluid, gender is formless. This is what we hear. Of course, in truth, ironically, if you're paying attention already at 8.39 on this fine Sunday morning, transgender ideology, though it promotes a fluid conception of humanity, actually depends upon a fixed conception of humanity because there has to be something fixed to play off of. And if I'm changing my gender from, let's say, uh, a a girl to a man, let's say a, a, a man to a woman, what am I doing? I'm shifting from one fixed identity to another, aren't I? So we hear that these things are not fixed. We hear that these things are are very much up in the air, and yet we also hear that people are changing to a new fixed identity. There's plenty of irony and confusion, even in the lobby, even among the people who are promoting this. It is a very confused idea. There's a third category today, and it is, as we have said, The transgender person, trans, between genders, they're neither traditionally male nor female. This is what we hear. They're a person caught between the sexes. They're seeking their truest self. All of this relates to other areas of intellectual life, transgender ideology. This idea that you can be neither male nor female, you can be in process, you can be fluid, and shifting to your true identity. This directly relates to other areas. Friends, ideas are rarely uh, generated out of isolation, out of nowhere, out of a vacuum. Usually you, you look at one corner of an idea of a system and you see that it's connected to other aspects of that system, and this is true with what uh, we commonly hear, for example, in public education around human origins. If you believe that the human race evolved from gaseous substances, literally gases that no one created, exploding in the Big Bang, right, so-called, and that Big Bang resulting in ever-increasing life forms, right, over millions and millions of years, leading up through the animal kingdom, uh, life evolving from a various uh, grouping of apes, really, into ever more complex beings, leading to human beings, male and female. Guess what? That is going to set the stage as a belief. Evolution, evolutionary theory, that sets the stage for a conception of the human person that is not fixed. Now we're used to these debates, creation versus evolution. Kansas was actually the site of one of these major debates in recent decades. We're used to these debates when it comes to the age of the earth, right? We're familiar with that conversation, young earth, old earth, these sorts of things. What we're not used to is thinking about these matters regarding the human person. It matters tremendously if you believe there's a creator who makes humanity. We're not even at biblical Christianity yet. We're not at gospel-driven Christianity. You just believe there is a divine figure who in some form creates humanity, okay? A traditional religious view. That matters tremendously. And it matters tremendously as well if you believe that there is no creator, there is no divine design of any kind, Catholic, Jewish, Protestant, whatever. There's no divine design. There's just gases and atoms colliding. Humanity does not owe its origins to any kind of creator figure. It's all just a process of chance and randomness that leads to you and me. But we're just evolved animals, you see. We're just evolved from gases. We're not special in any way. We're not divinely created. There's not any form or identity that we're supposed to inhabit as men and women. We're simply beings that walk around and have basically no difference from the animal kingdom. If you look into philosophy, philosophical trends in the last two or three hundred years, some of you are familiar with what is called the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment is essentially the rise of secular philosophy in the West, condensing heavily, as we must, in the time that we have this morning. A figure named John Locke, who is very influential in what we call epistemology, how we know what we know, famously pioneers the concept of mankind as a tabula rasa. I'm instinctively turning around from my whiteboard as a professor, but it it has betrayed me this morning. It is nowhere to be found. I'm going to write in the air here or something like this. Tabula, but there's no quiz. Okay, so that's good. There's, There's no pop quiz here. The tabula rasa means blank slate. It's Latin for blank slate. Locke and others in the Enlightenment era in the 18th and 19th centuries in Europe championed this conception of humanity that we're a blank slate. In other words, just like the aforementioned blackboard with nothing written on it, there's nothing written on you. There's nothing written on me. There's nothing coded into me that tells me who I need to be and who I must be. Locke uh, pioneers this idea and others develop it over Western history, the last, as I say, 200 or so years, and philosophers end up arguing that we have, as I have said, no broader obligation to a creator and no script for our humanity. So, essentially, if you trace Locke, who didn't really didn't really understand transgender as part of his project, but if you follow his project, and you follow secular thought in the West over the last several hundred years, you end up with the conclusion that we create our own identity. We have to be... Here's the language you're going to be very familiar with in terms of the radio, in terms of TV, in terms of the way your peers at in junior high, high school, college, and so on talk. I have to be True to who? Who do I have to be true to? Myself. Yes. See, you're, you're woken up. You're with me this morning. I have to authentically be who I am. I have to find myself. All this kind of language is derived from this kind of secular thinking on the human person. I don't have a fixed identity that I need to inhabit before God to glorify Him. No, 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 no. In a secular conception of humanity, in an enlightenment-driven conception of humanity, in a pagan vision of humanity, really, I create my identity. Identity is not created for me by God, as as I'm going to say this morning, just to give you the the ending of the book already, ending you already believe in. No, no, no. I don't inhabit a God-given, joy-giving identity. I create my identity. I am unique. No one can ever tell me who I need to be. You, you guys need to affirm who I am because I'm creating this identity. And if you don't affirm this, you're doing violence to me. That is really how we understand identity today. This can get very philosophical. We've already dabbled in that a little bit. But honestly, you can understand this even at a very young age. People today think they need to create who they are. They do not think they should receive God's vision of manhood and womanhood and identity and live that out. If you don't get anything else this morning, understand that. Because that is a conflict of visions. That, are, that is two different ways of understanding the human person. All this, of course, dovetails, all this philosophy and this thinking dovetails with what we call the sexual revolution of the 1960s. This movement championed a number of new ideas, ideas that, of course, are not actually new but are new in terms of popular acceptance in America. There's a disconnection of, and here we're going to get a little, little less polite that we're being careful, there's the disconnection of sex from marriage in the sexual revolution. So those two things do not go together, as people believe for millennia, those two things can be separated, sex from marriage. There's the positive virtue of what was called free love and unattached romance, so you just pursue love so-called sex for its own good. You don't pursue it because you're trying to marry someone and build a family. You pursue it just because you want to engage in it and uh, gratify the lusts of the flesh which are in all of us, and that's, that's all it is. It's nothing more. There's nothing bigger than, that is happening in this kind of encounter. It's just something that takes place momentarily and then is over. Does that sound familiar in terms of a cultural conception of sex today? Yes, it does. That is the prevailing conception of sex today in 2018. Sexual revolution basically makes the argument that marriage itself is repressive, especially for women. So, any woman who would put herself into a marriage, certainly under some kind of traditional rubric, biblical understanding of submission to her husband, is being repressed. She's being chained to the kitchen, so-called, and so marriage is really an oppressive construct that has been created to keep women down and to squelch joy. We have the complete opposite perspective, biblically, when it comes to marriage and gender roles, as we call them. The nuclear family itself, so one man, one woman, husband, wife, joined together, um, having the gift of children as God allows. The nuclear family, that's what it's called, is repressive as well. It's a repressive structure that is not good for people, it's not good for men or women or children. It's better to blow up the traditional vision of the family and live any which way, live any way we choose. You could have ultimately in the 21st century, you could have multiple partners. You could have three people married. This is happening today. You could have four people engaging in some kind of a family. Four adults. Uh, if, you, if you don't want to stick around as the kids are born and then grow up, you don't have to stick around. You don't have to stick around. This is, this is a new understanding not only of the human person, but the human family that the sexual revolution champions. So, you know, if you fall out of love with one another, if a couple is in love, right? This is very familiar terminology, yes? If you fall in love, okay, oh, it's great. You, are, you have found your soulmate, right? Because when you're around them, your emotional barometer goes to nuclear and you're so excited about this person, you have a feeling you've never imagined before that has swept over you, leading you to embrace just this one person. This is the only person you could ever feel positively toward, so you're in love, yay. But what if you fall out of love? You see, the sexual revolution ends up championing an emotivist, emotional conception of love. Love is a feeling. Love is not a covenant, as in Christianity. Love is not a commitment to somebody, come what may. Love is a feeling. If you can feel your way into marriage, friends, listen this morning, you can feel your way out of it. If your marriage is feelings-based, good luck. Because there are going to be low points in any marriage, Christian or otherwise, and those low points, if you're not careful, if you're not tethered to the mast, they will drive you right out of marriage, just as feelings have driven you into it. Now, we're not against feelings as Christians. We believe God made feelings such that we would feel deeply, I mean extremely passionately about God. But if feelings are supposedly the anchor of your marriage, that anchor will not hold will not hold. We're in a fallen world. Marriage is two sinners marrying one another. It is not like Hollywood says it is. If you're in a a Christian family and so, you know, sex is connected to marriage and you think, I want to head toward marriage as God allows. Do not think that getting married is going to solve all the problems of the world and it's going to be this unending romantic comedy or something like this when, when you just get married. Marriage is very hard work. If feelings drive you into marriage, feelings will drive you out of it. Accordingly, in the sexual revolution, the right of elective good, uh, elective abortion, excuse me, is championed. So, abortion becomes the necessary partner to this new vision of love and sex, right? Because these things are not necessarily linked. Sex, marriage, family, You can just do whatever you want with whomever you want. Well, guess what? God structured the world so that children result from this. This is a shocking finding, I'm telling you, this morning. Children result from procreation, from a man and a woman getting together sexually. And so, there needs to be a new mechanism for solving that problem. Well, what is that? Abortion. About 60 million babies aborted in America in the last 40 years or so. We talk about other countries as third-world countries. We're the third-world country. We're the the country that has pioneered a way to destroy, to tear apart, to decreate human life in unprecedented fashion. No other civilization has remotely approached America, the first world superpower, in destroying its own young, No one, no one comes close to doing what we have done. It is a holocaust of the young, and it continues today, continues, and we hear that young evangelicals are far less interested in taking a stand on the pro-life issue because it doesn't play well politically. Their peers don't like them if they talk about it. Friends, we can never abandon the pro-life cause. This isn't an option, this is an ethical buffet where we choose if we're gonna speak up on the pro-life issue. There is a wholesale slaughter of babies happening in beautiful cities like this. We have to speak up. We can never stop speaking up and defending those who cannot speak for themselves and those who cannot defend themselves. We are not going to stop. We're gonna do this until God takes us home we have to champion those who cannot champion themselves. We have to love neighbor, second greatest commandment, Matthew 22. And then lastly, the sexual revolution stands for the need to abandon traditional gender roles. So, if, if men and women are seen as distinctive in their identity, their body, and then they, they are said to have different roles in the home or the church, that again is repressive. Because again, here, here you see how philosophy really does matter. No one can tell me who I am. No one can tell me what I need to do. That's not affirming me uniquely, and that's repressing me and putting me in a straitjacket, and that is the ultimate sin today. So gender roles, even in evangelical circles, a man being called the head of his wife, a woman submitting to her husband, provided he's not leading her into sin, these kind of things, men being the pastors and teachers and shepherds and leaders of the church, these things are seen as repressive, and harmful to people. That's, that's where we are. That's where this church is in 21st century America. That's what you're inheriting if you're a, a youth being raised in this church. You're being blackballed essentially in our culture increasingly in today. So, we find ourselves with a very different playing field in 2018 than basically any Christian before in America and in human history in terms of what we're up against, in terms of this debate between secularism and traditionalism, if we want to call it that. Let me give you some terms before we dive into what the Bible teaches on transgender. According to modern gender theory, we all possess a sexual orientation. Sexual orientation refers to our enduring patterns of attraction. Are we attracted to same sex, opposite sex, some vague, undefined option? Okay, that's your sexual orientation. We also have a gender identity. This is according to Planned Parenthood, that very trustworthy and moral source in our culture today. We have a gender identity. This is your inmost understanding of yourself as male, female, something fluid, plus, gender, plus, that's a real term today. Your gender identity is not what your body tells you you are. There's a separation in modern gender theory between your body and your identity, and that separation does not hold biblically. We're not going to affirm that this morning, just so you know. Your gender expression, third term, refers to the way you present your gender identity. So even if you have the body of a girl, you might cut your hair really short and present yourself essentially as a boy. If you are a boy and you don't like the traditional norms and you want to kind of rebel a a little bit, which is very common today, rebellion is essentially true authentic humanity in our culture, then you would grow your hair long and maybe flirt with gender norms and wear different colors that are traditionally associated with feminine identity and these sorts of things. You're expressing your gender identity. Your anatomy is merely excuse the term, but merely your core physicality, your genitalia, that's all it is. It's just, it's just atoms on your body, but your, your anatomy, your body, your form doesn't tell you anything about who you are, it just tells you what, what you're working with to start with. But you can change that. You can change your body, you can have surgery, you can take pills. If you're transgender, finally, then, your gender identity differs from your birth sex. And if you're transgender, you actually go all the way and seek to transition into a different gender identity. That's what people all around us are doing. You're facing this, I know, at school. You're facing this at your workplace. Uh, You're facing this as you go to Target. You're seeing men and women who are undergoing transitions and presenting themselves as the opposite of their birth sex. I went to Hy-Vee a couple weeks ago on my work lunch break. Uh, up in the Northland, and yes, indeed, there was a person presenting themselves as the opposite sex. Clearly not a woman, but a man presenting himself as a woman, so this is where we are. Here we are, brave new world right now, 21st century America. We were warned of this rising tide. Francis Schaeffer saw what was coming, and he said this, evangelicals have very gradually become disturbed over permissiveness, pornography, the public schools, the breakdown of the family, and finally abortion. But they have not seen this, Schaefer said, some 40 years ago, as a totality, each thing being a part, a symptom of a much larger problem. They have failed to see that all of this has come about due to a shift in worldview. That is, through a fundamental change in the overall way people think and view the world and life as a whole. Schaefer is dead right. It's not just that somebody is is tweaking uh, established gender norms by wearing the clothes of the opposite sex. It's not just that they're doing a little rebellion or they're a little psychologically confused. It's actually that they are buying into a pagan, secular vision of the human person, whether they know that or not, whether they can cite all sorts of philosophers or not. That is what is taking place. They are rebelling against God's design. They're rebelling against God. They're sinning, hear me as clearly as Crystal, they are sinning against God and they need gospel witness, and they need to repent of all of that, and they need to confess that to God and be transformed just like every sinner of every kind. Okay, with all this laid out, moving rapidly, what does the Bible teach us about these matters? What does the Bible teach us? We're going to go super fast because I'm trying to leave room for Q&A. Number one, We're going to see five things, and then I have five points of application moving rapidly. Number one, we see that God makes male and female in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2. He makes male and female. It's His idea. Genesis 1.27. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. This is telling us the core of human identity. Genesis 1 has a profound stake in these matters. What does it mean to be human? Well, it tells us. To be human fundamentally means to be made in God's image in a totally unique way, not like the animals. God has not selected a hominid pair, a kind of ape pair that was previously existing, and and sold them and made them Adam and Eve. No, no, no. God, Genesis 2, we know, creates the man from the dust and the woman from the man's rib, and He makes, God makes male and female. It's His own design. God has a stake. God has put His stamp on this conversation. This is not up for debate. This is human Origins. This is how we know why there are men and why there are women. It's because God made them. These things have been taken for granted in the West, certainly in America. You may never have heard a sermon really spelling these things out. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I don't know. I don't think many of us have because these things were taken for granted. They're not taken for granted any longer, friends. Don't take them for granted now. Even in the church, people don't necessarily believe these things, but the Bible is our absolute ultimate final authority. The Bible speaks to these things. It speaks to these things on the very first page of Scripture. Is this important? This is very important. So we know from Genesis 1, he made them male and female, and Genesis 2, which gives us a window into the actual historical in time creation of the man and woman, we know that God is the maker of the sexes. Sexes is a better word than gender, because gender refers to something that's kind of more fluid. Sexes refers to something that is hard and fast. Second, the fall of Genesis 3 is an attack on God's plan. We are versed in understanding the fall of Genesis 3 as the time when Adam and Eve did a bad thing against the will of God, which is true, horribly true. Genesis 3 is actually historical as well, by the way, in my view. what actually is taking place at a deeper level is that Satan is undermining all the created order of God. Why? Because Adam and Eve were supposed to rule over the earth. They're, they're vice regents. They're little, little kings and, and queens on the earth ruling in the name of God, but, and they're supposed to rule over the creeping things. Genesis 1 teaches us at the end of the chapter. But what happens in Genesis 3? A creeping thing, a serpent, goes to the woman. And gets her to lead her husband into sin. That is a complete inversion of God's design. The man is the one who is supposed to lead his wife. He's the one who is called to leave father and mother, Genesis 2.24, and hold fast to one wife. The man is supposed to lead comprehensively in his marriage. It doesn't render Eve, you know, voiceless or something like this. He's supposed to love his wife. She's made from his body, and she's a helper fit for him. So she brings things to the marriage, right? Right? He can't bring. So Genesis 2 isn't giving us a foundation for manhood and womanhood where the woman has no value and the man just tells her what to do. No, no, no. It's it's showing us manhood and womanhood in full glory as designed by God. But the man is supposed to lead the woman. He's supposed to protect her. We're going to see that in Ephesians 5, that Jesus is going to be the, the husband who lays down his life for his bride, telling us what men are supposed to do. Every man is supposed to look at a woman, I believe, as a reflection of that teaching. and and structure his life accordingly. But Adam does not protect his wife, he doesn't smash the serpent's head, instead he passively follows the woman. And so Satan has completely inverted God's design. In Genesis 3 is the ground of all sin, it's the ground of all rebellion against gender norms, God's design, all sin, all brokenness that we taste in this cursed world comes from the real historical fall of Genesis 3 which follows the real historical creation of the man and woman in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, on the sixth day, the apex of creation. This is where gender dysphoria comes from, Genesis 3. Note that. Number three, moving rapidly, God forbids cross-dressing in the old covenant law. He forbids cross-dressing. So you think people say, the well, I does not say anything about transgender. Well, it doesn't use that term, no but it actually has a good bit to say if you really read your Bible. You're like a Berean. You search out the Scriptures. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is what? An abomination to the Lord your God. The strongest ethical term used in the Old Covenant is abomination. If something is abominatory, It is as much against the will of God as it can be. Yes, it is true that every sin separates us from an infinite distance from God. That is true. But all sins do not anger God the same. Be very clear about that. That's true in both the Old and the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God put an iron prohibition down against cross-dressing. A woman was not to wear a man's garment, and a man was not to wear a woman's garment. This was because... God had created men to present themselves as men. God has a stake in this. God cares about this. God wants men, I'm saying today, I think, as the outflow of this teaching. We'll talk more about the New Covenant teaching. But in the ancient times, God was setting His stamp upon this issue and saying, I want men to look like men, and I want women to look like women. So we need to understand the Old Covenant law as we understand the New Covenant law. And there we move, the New Testament. Number four, Jesus affirms the goodness of man and woman in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, verses 3 through 6, a conversation over divorce. Jesus says in verse 4, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female? So God, here, here's Jesus affirming that God made men and God made women. This is very important. Jesus speaks to what we call essentialist understandings of the sexes. Jesus speaks to God's creational design, and he totally upholds it. He does not in any way tweak it or water it down. So Jesus believes in men being men and women being women. That is the foundation of marriage. Marriage is not whatever you make of it. Marriage is not any grouping of adults who wish to enter into some kind of marital partnership. Marriage is defined by God. Before marriage comes the sexes, right? Before marriage is man and woman. Marriage is made for man and woman. Contra what you hear today in 2018 in this city, in this state, in this era, marriage is not up for debate. It's not up for revision. God has defined it, And He has done so not merely because He's God and He's some sort of grumpy figure up there who wants to squelch human happiness. God has created marriage for our flourishing and our good. Not everyone is called to it, 1 Corinthians 7. But if you are called to it, it is for your good. It's for your good that God made it this way. Marriage is not first and foremost about your and my emotional, you know, happiness being as high as it can be, possibly on the meter. Marriage is fundamentally about the glory of God. It's also about the sanctification of the spouses. It is about joy and pleasure and happiness. Let's not miss that. But it's, it's also very much about the raising of children, the protection and care of children. What is abortion but an absolute denial of what marriage is? Fifth, Paul calls men and women to represent their given sex in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. I can't read the whole passage in the interest of time. But if you return to 1 Corinthians eleven seven 7 through 15, you see that Paul clearly distinguishes man from woman. And it's a, it's a tricky passage. There's some, there's some matters to handle carefully in this passage, 1 Corinthians 11. Make no mistake. But it seems that Paul is telling women that they should look differently than men. They have a covering on their head, which I think in most cases, as a woman is able, refers to longer hair. Her longer hair, as she is able differentiates her from the man. And it shows something about the order of creation, actually, that, um, that the man is the image and glory of God. The man, I think Paul is saying here, is the, is the head of his wife, as he says elsewhere in his letters. So, the the head covering, which I think, again, is long hair. It's not wearing some sort of kerchief or something on your head. I think the head covering is long hair that shows that the sexes are distinct and refers all the way back to Genesis 2, to the original creation, that the man is created first and that the man is the head of his wife. So men and women, according to New Covenant law, New Testament, just like the Old Testament, are not the same and should not present themselves as the same. They're called to honor the Lord by showing the distinctive glory of their God-given sex. The glory of a woman is her long hair, according to Paul, in a way that is not true for a man. Okay, we have done a rapid tour, going 75 on the highway, to get to how we should thus respond to our cultural moment. So let's look at five quick applications. You have them there on your handout. First, we need to see that the Bible, as we have said, addresses cross-dressing and gender-bending. It addresses it, as I have said, in both Old Covenant and New Covenant teaching. Old Covenant teaching is no longer binding on the church. New Covenant teaching is binding on the church. Old Covenant teaching is not useless or outdated, however. It's used to instruct New Covenant teaching. And so we see there is one voice in Scripture that tells us to own our God-given sex. That's what Scripture is telling us from start to finish. So, the corollary, to embrace a transgender identity or to cross-dress or to bend your gender in any form is sinful. It's sin. It's not just something that's psychologically misfiring. We have a strongly moral hyphen theological vision of the world as believers. We believe that things in so many cases are black and white and are right and wrong, and it is not right, per the teaching of the whole council of God, to cross-dress or to gender bend. People all around you may do it. They, they were doing it in the first century in ancient Corinth. That's part of why the Apostle Paul addressed it, because the ancient church, the first-century church was surrounded by this kind of pagan practice, bending your gender, engaging in sexual relations with whoever you wanted to, temple prostitution. And the Apostle Paul didn't try to cut a middle path through that. He called the church to be totally ethically pure and distinct. Young Christians, your goal is not to figure out a way to cut that middle way, to be a Christian, but not to be too Christian so that, you know, people get freaked out by you. Your call as a young Christian, whatever your setting, whatever your context, is to be distinctly holy. Not to be holier than thou, as if you're better than fellow sinners, you're not. To be humble, that's part of holiness, but to be righteous, to be set apart. Even if everybody bows the knee to secularism, you're the one in the crowd, who doesn't bow. That's what Scripture is teaching you. Even if everybody at your workplace, 20-something, 30-something, even if everybody in your workplace buys into the new gender code in some form and affirms, you know, the coworker who just celebrated a homosexual marriage, you can't do that. You can't go there. You're just like Daniel. There's not a new way to be a Christian witness, which involves playing down your Christian witness, but being really nice. The way to be a Christian witness is to tell the truth and to live out that truth as best you can by the power of the Holy Spirit in love. There's no fancy way to be a witness today that no one's ever thought of. The way is to be ethically pure by the grace of God and then be a loving person calling people to the grace of God that is in Christ through confession and repentance. Do not ever underplay just how powerful that will be in a fallen world. People are desperate to see somebody who will stand up for the truth of God. And and there will be an evangelistic effect as God moves toward that end. Second, we have to see that our desires run wild. There's not just a little bit of sin in here, in this heart. Not just a little bit, like 1.4%. There's a wildness in the human heart because of the real historical fall of Adam. There's a wildness that wants to break out This is why people ruin their lives for no good reason. This is why even professing Christians who have been in churches for decades and seemingly are godly and strong, this is why they blow up their lives. They turn their back on their kids. They walk away from the faith they have professed. Why? Because sin is not tame. Sin is wild. Now Christians have have the power of sin broken and defeated by the cross of Christ. So do not mishear me. But even as a believer, Colossians 3, we have to what? Put to death the old man on a daily, hourly, minute-by-minute basis. Friends, your desires and mine run wild. What you click on as an image that is sexual and scandalous that you think no one else sees can lead you down a path of absolute ruin. Your heart is not tame. You can't trust it. You can trust Christ and His power, but you can never coast as a believer. This explains then why people want to reject their body, want to reject the Bible, the wisdom of God. It's because the fallen human heart is depraved. It's wild. It's not tame. We have to reckon with this. This is why people all around us are embracing this kind of lifestyle. They're doing what you and I would do in some form if God had not saved us. Third, we have to handle individuals with care. God hasn't done something bad in putting you in a fallen context. We shouldn't head for the hills as America secularizes. God wants the city of God, Augustine's term, to be in the city of man. He wants you to be in a secular workplace. He wants you to be in a secular public school, at least in a good number of situations. There's, of course, a case for leaving these kind of things if you must. And you have to have that option ready. Do not mishear me. But God, as much as we can, wants us to be witnesses to fallen people in a fallen world. And that is going to mean not that we affirm their sin. You never affirm someone's sin. That's not loving. But that you affirm their humanity. You and I should love gay and lesbian and transgender people so so identified more than their own communities profess to love them. We know who a gay person is, so-called a lesbian person, a transgender person. We, We know who made them. God made them in His own image. We have profound cosmic reasons for showing that person love, for being kind to them, for being respectful to them but that never involves ever affirming their sin. It involves telling the truth, praying that we can tell the truth to them as we have opportunity. That's what we're seeking. Those are the opportunities we're praying for. We're not praying God would take us out of the mess. Jesus, think about the incarnation. Jesus entered into the mess. He parachuted in to the worst spot, and He came to be an emissary of divine love. So you and I pray to be, even as... We know that people will not necessarily think we are loving, okay? Don't mishear me. People will not necessarily receive you as loving for your Christian witness. They will make you think that you are doing something wrong if you tell the truth about these matters, even in a loving, gracious way. They, they may kick you out of the medical profession because you refuse to help someone transition. You cannot do it ethically, which you sh- I, I do not think you should. They, they may kick you out of the vice presidency at your business, which you have worked for 40 years to enter. They may kick you out of that retirement package. There are going to be costs here. You may lose that classroom you, of, of students you love teaching in the public environment because you cannot teach modern progressive gender theory. Be ready to take a stand. Be ready to suffer the cost. You, you may have to suffer the cost. If you do, you will only be doing, I will only be doing what past Christians in past centuries have done over and over and over again. There is a trail of blood that cuts through Christian history. There is a trail of suffering and persecution that results from Christian witness. We're in comfortable America. We don't necessarily want to embrace this. It's in the Bible. Beyond the Bible, it's in church history. Christians often have to suffer, not be applauded for being a Christian witness. It's true on this issue. It's true on these matters. I don't know what will happen with you. Maybe you won't suffer. Maybe you will retain your position and still be a Christian witness. If so, praise God. I'm not urging you to run through the halls of your workplace shouting the things we're talking about at full volume. I, I want you to be a shrewd, shrewd as, shrewd as, as foxes gospel witness, but I don't want you to miss that there's going to be a cost for many of us in being a follower of Christ. Fourth, As fathers and mothers, we have to train our children well. We should not encourage or permit our children to dress in the clothing of the opposite sex. We cannot allow them to do so. If they persist in that, we're not going to sever our loving connection to them. But we cannot affirm them as they do that. We should not raise our boys and girls in a gender-fluid way. We should raise our boys to be boys and our girls to be girls. Of course, there are some cultural gray areas. Yes, I admit that. That's going to take wisdom. There are elders in this local church to help you figure out matters like this. So let's, let's acknowledge that and be honest about it. And yet, we, we, we need to raise our boys to be boys and our girls to be girls. There's so much more I would like to say on that matter. Maybe if I'm not kicked out of the pulpit for saying these things this morning, maybe I can talk about manhood and womanhood and what that actually means at some point. I can't go into it now, but, uh, but let that be said. Five and lastly, we should know that we will face qu- hard questions in the public square. We're going to face them. But as I conclude, I want you to know this. Was it easy for Esther to be a witness in her day? Was it easy for Daniel? Was it easy for the Apostle Paul? Why do you and I expect that we would get a free ride for being a Christian? Yes, we're in this unique country, America, which is not perfect by a long shot. Think of our record on racial issues but has championed religious liberty in basically an unprecedented way over its history. But if that changes and and the tide turns against us as Christians, we have to go back to the Scriptures and we have to see that this is not a new problem. This is an ancient one. But here's the good news, okay? The gospel of Christ is undefeated. (laughs) The kingdom of heaven is invincible. The gospel may well advance as you and I suffer. That's often how God, not always, but often how God allows things to play. What transgender people need, people who identify that way, what gay and lesbian people need most is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is what you and I have to offer because we are ruined sinners just like them, saved by the grace of God, which is far more powerful than any theory taught in a gender studies class, or any code being promoted in your workplace or in the public sector today. God is undefeated, and even if you suffer for Him, your rewards will only increase in the new heavens and the new earth. With that said, I will conclude. Thank you so much for your attention.